this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Celine Vent about her new book, Beyond the Door of No Return, Confronting Hidden Colonial Histories Through Contemporary Art. Celine Vent, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Holiday, and thank you for having me. Celine, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I am a writer and a curator of contemporary art. I uh, was born in Geneva. I live in Norway and I was raised throughout the world. I have a very global perspective, which is possibly influenced by my upbringing. Uh, and I have a long-term interest and focus on uh, decolonial strategies in contemporary art. And uh, this book, uh, I would say, is a logical extension of my ongoing research as a writer and curator. And so can you tell us a bit about how you came to write this book? Well, it's connected to many different things. I would say most Clearly, the book represents the third in a series of interconnected projects dedicated to exposing hidden colonial histories and examining the entangled colonial histories that connect Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. So there are two recent exhibitions that are the two first aspects of this, let's say we call it a trilogy, The Sea is History in 2019, where I was interested in highlighting the importance of great Caribbean thinkers such as Stuart Hall and Edouard Glissant within a wider global context. And then in 2020, listening to the echoes of the South Atlantic, where the focus was on sonic politics and musical migrations, also set in relation to cultural theory. And as you will soon discover, these themes are highly relevant within the context of this book and to the artists uh, whose work I address throughout the book. 
And I'd like to mention before we, we let loose and talk about the details of the book that a powerful overriding theme throughout is the power of women, both then, historically, and now, to stand up against social injustice. So emphasis is placed on stories of resistance and a rebellion against colonial rule, shedding light on the importance of heroines, ranging from Mary Thomas, Venus Johannes, Anna Hergård, and Escrava Anastasia, who I will refer to later on. Their stories of resistance and rebellion are told through the narratives of these artists and told from the perspective of the descendants of the enslaved, thereby allowing for a deeper, more nuanced understanding of colonial history than the historical narratives that have typically been told from a Eurocentric perspective. Um, and in this sense, I think it's also worth mentioning that the book features 11 contemporary artists, each of them fantastic in their own right, and nine of them are women. You start off the book with an introduction that begins with you at the Osu Castle in Accra. Could you perhaps start there? Yeah, um, I was interested in entering the book uh, in a very personal way because it's a very personal book, of course. Uh, So the introduction contextualizes my overall approach and briefly summarizes Norwegian involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. So as you say, the book begins with my own visit to Osu Castle in Accra, Ghana, also known as Christiansborg Fort. And I felt that this was a way of uh, introducing readers to my perspective and interest. My interest lies in exposing the lesser known details of colonial history with particular emphasis on stories of resistance and rebellion against colonial rule, which is a theme that runs throughout the book. The artists featured in this book shed light on the entangled colonial histories that connect Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas, as I mentioned previously. And collectively, their work provides insight into aspects of colonial history that have been overlooked, consciously ignored, swept aside. And uh, from a Norwegian perspective, uh, it's interesting to note that up until recently, the widely accepted narrative has been that Norway has no colonial history in relation to Africa and the Caribbean. It wasn't until 2017 when Denmark celebrated the 100 year anniversary of Denmark selling the former Danish West Indies to the United States for $25 million in gold that Denmark really began to acknowledge its own colonial past in relation to the Caribbean. The fact that Norwegian shipping and trade profited from the transatlantic slave trade was and still is widely overlooked. Um, And the fact is, Norwegian merchants, investors, and ship owners were directly involved in the shipment of enslaved Africans to the Caribbean. And we're talking about 100, the the numbers vary, but we're talking about approximately 120,000 individuals. That may seem very small in comparison to the number of individuals that were transported by nations such as Portugal and Britain, but it is still a highly significant number that cannot be overlooked. And even after 1803, when the shipment of enslaved individuals from Africa to the Caribbean was abolished under the Danish flag, Danes and Norwegians continued to profit from slave ownership and the plantation economy along the Gold Coast in Africa and in the former Danish West Indies. So 
overall, this was my way of explaining what the book is generally about. It's all about exposing hidden colonial histories and recognizing and confronting the consequences of colonial history. You then move into a discussion of the two exhibitions that you had mentioned at the very beginning of our podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about the SIA's history and listening to the echoes of the South Atlantic? I'd like to. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, so in thinking about how this book would would uh, be developed, it made sense to me to look back to the CS history and listening to the echoes of the South Atlantic um, by way of an introduction to these themes, because these are great thinkers that have influenced both of these exhibitions, who have influenced my own research over time and my writing, and also the work of the artists that are featured in the book. So starting with the CS history, here the focus in this introduction is on Mantia Diawara. There were 10 other artists who participated in that specific uh, exhibition. But the core aspect that I wanted to focus on here is the emphasis on uh, Edouard Glissant. And Mantia Diawara, I think more so than anyone else, has really done a tremendous job in terms of making Edouard Glissant's theories accessible to a wider public through visual means and also through written means as well. But I would say that he is the one person that has really opened up people's consciousness to the importance of Edouard Glissant. And his work illuminates Glissant's theories of archipelagic thinking, creolization, Glissant's philosophy and poetics of relation, uh, his his theory of of world mentality, tout monde, and opacity. And also within the context of the CS history, Stuart Hall is extremely important. And I would say overall, Stuart Hall's and Edouard Glissant's contributions to cultural theory provide, in general, valuable insight into processes of migration. And their thinking helps to illuminate the intricate cultural tapestry that migration creates both historically and within a contemporary context. Um, Both of them uh, address this idea, and and other thinkers have done so as well, but right now I'm just thinking about Stuart Hall and and Edouard Glissant, but the idea that we should think of culture not necessarily in relation to rootedness and roots, but rather in relation to routes and routes that people travel. This conveys an expansive and inclusive notion of culture that is important throughout the works of the artists that are presented in this book. It's all it creates a rich canvas of culture that is woven along these roots. And this is something that we'll see in the works of the various artists. So more specifically in this introduction and in relation to Glissant, Diawara's work provides insight into, among other things, Glissant's philosophy of relation and captures an important ideological shift from the idea of globalization to mondialité or understood as world mentality. The idea that we should look at our differences, not as that which divides us, 
but that links us individually and collectively in the two monde or one world, a place where there are no frontiers of language, territory, or power. We're talking at a place that is taking a distinct stance against hegemony and colonialism and those kind of power structures. Interestingly, in 2009, Diawara accompanied Glissant on a transatlantic journey from Hampton to Brooklyn on the Queen Mary II. And the results are seen in Edouard Glissant, One World in Relation, which is a part of a film trilogy, which also includes an opera to the world, and Pensée Archipelique, or Archipelagic Thinking. And it's, it, these aspects are incredibly important because as Diawara so pointedly uh, expresses, Glissant helps us to understand how we must change. Glissant helps us to understand how we must think collectively. We must think of being alert to human rights. And um, as Diawara says it, as Glissant would put it, we are in danger of losing our capacity to tremble within the trembling of others, the migrants. I mention the migrants because there is this correlation throughout between the atrocities of colonialism and the Middle Passage and the aftermath of colonialism and forced migration today. So these are themes that run throughout the book. And therefore, I found it important to kind of just have a little bit of a teaser to those thinkers at the beginning of the book. And also throughout the book, Stuart Hall's work would ring true throughout. And something that he said that I always return to a past which is forgotten or rendered inconsequential will take its historic revenge. And that's something that we see throughout so many of the works that are presented in this book. Then, with listening to the echoes of the South Atlantic, emphasis is placed on the connection between music and history, building upon what Paul Gilroy describes as the Atlantic as a system of cultural exchanges. And in this exhibition, the focus was on the idea of music as a collective language of resistance and solidarity and the importance of sonic politics. Again, this circles back to Glissant and his concept of monde, And we can appreciate the idea of the historical weight of a call and response that unites individuals through time and across geographies, which is also thoroughly relevant throughout the book. So it is sort of at the intersection between art, music, poetry, and literature that we as readers can access a deeper understanding of the overlapping and entangled histories that connect Norway, not only to Denmark and Europe, but also to Africa and the Caribbean. And that's what I hope readers will get from reading this book and being introduced to the works of these fantastic contemporary artists. You then move into a more direct history of the Norwegian colonial history. Could you describe that a bit? That's in From Africa to the West Indies on Danish-Norwegian slave ships. Yes. Um, Well, I thought it was important to give a brief overview as this history is really not widely known. And I would say that's not 
an international phenomenon, even in Norway, it is really not widely known. And it's often consciously ignored or swept aside as, as, you know, Norway was part of Denmark and therefore we 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 had no part in uh, in um, colonial presence in Africa, but the fact is, at the height of Danish Norwegian colonial presence in Africa, there were numerous trading stations, forts, and castles along the Gold Coast, with Christiansborg Fort as the headquarters of the slave trade. In fact, that Christiansborg Fort was so important to the economy that it was even pictured on Danish coinage between 1688 to 1747. And I think that's an interesting an interesting little anecdote because when Norwegians ask me, are you sure? I can say, well, yes, I'm sure, because we know that, I mean, among many other reasons, but when it's featured on the coinage, you know how important it was. Um, and, you know, it was a very long process of colonization. Um, and I don't need to go into all of the details because the details are outlined within the book. But um, you could say that it started on the Gold Coast with Christiansborg Fort. And then in 1672, after Danish West Indies Company was established in 1671, uh, St. Thomas was annexed. And then eventually, Danish West Indies and Guinea Company was established, and then St. John was annexed in 1718. In 1733, St. Croix was purchased by Christian VI from France. And it wasn't actually until 1754 that the Danish crown purchased Danish West Indies and Guinea Company, thereby the the former Danish West Indies were under direct rule of the Danish crown until 1917. So, as I mentioned earlier, roughly 120,000 enslaved Africans were transported within the triangular trade. Um, Interestingly, and I I will try not to go into too much detail here, but um, in 1792, King Frederick ruled that the transport of enslaved Africans would be abolished in 1803. And so it turns out that the greatest number of enslaved Africans were transported between 1793 and 1802, roughly 2,500 a year, um, as the plantation owners uh, wanted to uh, transport as many enslaved individuals as possible before it was abolished. And even after 1803, Danes and Norwegians continued to profit from the plantation economy Uh, both uh, along the Gold Coast and in the former Danish West Indies. You move into the group of different artworks that you then talk about for the remainder of the book by starting with an artwork that really directly confronts Denmark's and Norway's colonial past. Can you tell us about that? This is such an important work. I am Queen Mary. And it's a collaborative work by Jeanette Ellers uh, and Lavon Bell. And it, this is the first monument in Denmark to address its colonization of the West Indies. And it's interesting to know that this monument stands outside the 18th century warehouse that was built for Danish West Indies Company. And 
beyond being a beautiful collaborative work between two amazing contemporary artists, it's a beautiful act of empowerment and resistance. And you have this beautiful image, well, it's not an image, the beautiful sculpture of the um, Crucian freedom fighter, Mary Thomas, who was an important leader of the Fireburn labor revolt, which took place in St. Croix in 1878. And in this monument, she sits on a peacock chair that references the iconic image of Huey P. Newton, leader of the Black Panther Party. And she is she her face is a composite of the faces of Jeannette and Lavelle and Lavon, which is a beautiful way of visualizing that she is a symbol of empowerment for women throughout the African diaspora. Uh, she stands on a plinth that's composed of 1.5 tons of coral imported from St. Croix. And this is an important detail because this, in addition to referencing an earlier work by Lavon Bell um, that was also comprised of coral that was called Trading Post, um, this references the coral that was once cut by hand by enslaved Africans in St. Croix and used in the foundations of buildings in the former West, Danish West Indies. So this work is, it's incredible that this is the absolute first work to memorialize uh, a freedom, this freedom fighter, of course, but it's the first work that I addresses and confronts Danish colonization of the West Indies. And although it was originally made as a temporary work, it is now going to be permanent, which is really, uh, within the context of Scandinavia, this is really great. That's wonderful. You then move into Eller's personal work. You had started with a collaborative piece, and then you move into Eller's own body of work. Yeah. And uh, Jeanette Eller's, uh, of course, in addition to having made this fantastic work together with Levon Bell, has her own uh, practice as in working many, many years what I like to call, um, you know, she has a way of creating these mesmerizing history lessons, I would say. She rewrites the colonial narratives in ways that really capture the viewer's attention and really force one to reconsider what one has thought has been the reality. Um, I focus in this chapter on... A her Atlantic trilogy, which she created in 2009. And that includes Black Magic at the White House, Three Steps of Story, and Speed Up That Day. Each of these films are radical decolonial gestures, just as I Am Queen Mary was, by the way. But they are interventions that cut into white colonial space in really provocative, layered, and engaging ways. So in Black Magic at the White House, Jeanette performs a voodoo dance at Marienborg Castle in Denmark, which has strong connections to the triangular trade and is also the official residence, by the way, of the Danish prime minister since 1961 or 62. So Jeanette performs an invisible dance 
in this video. It's a rather short video, but very powerful. We see her outline, but we don't actually see her. She is camouflaged into the antique wallpaper and floor. And there's something so powerful in this invisibility, which is an erasure. And it's an erasure of an erasure, in a sense, as she's occupying this colonial space. And in my opinion, it's a bold and radical act of resistance that really addresses Denmark-Norway's unspoken histories head on. And I think it's worth mentioning that Jeanette Ellers is one of the first artists in Scandinavia who ever addressed Danish colonial history. And she has continued to do so in various ways. But within the context of this book, I was interested in, in this particular trilogy. And the other work, Three Steps of Story, which is here, we have Jeanette dancing through the mirrored ballroom at Government House in St. Croix. And here there are references to the story of Admiral Peter von Schalten, who was often credited for his efforts to abolish slavery. But Jeanette manages to convey a much more nuanced account, a nuanced account of uh, what really happened and the other people that were behind the the final abolishment of slavery. So Anna Hergård, who was a... um, of so-called free colored, who he uh, invited to his ballroom to dance in these uh, these parties that they had. She had a great influence on him. So with Jeanette dancing through the mirrored ballroom at Government House in St. Croix, she's sort of like paying homage to Anna Hergård in a very indirect but beautiful way. And again, it's a critical questioning of white colonial space. And in the final work in the trilogy, Speed Up That Day, she takes a step outside of colonial space. It's still a colonial space, but she's outside rather than inside those structures. It's shot outside Fort Frederick, where Admiral von Scholten proclaimed the emancipation of slaves in 1848. Interestingly, the soundscape is of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And again, in this work and all three works, she touches on notions of visibility and invisibility, rewriting colonial narratives and recentering the focus on non-Eurocentric perspectives. And um, that in itself is, is a powerful act of resistance, very important. You then write a chapter on the artist Oceana James and her performance that uh, focuses on the story of Venus Johannes. Yeah, and I think this is uh, really interesting when these contemporary artists zero in on narratives of uh, these heroines of colonial history who have long been written out of Eurocentric narratives of colonialism, who played such a crucial part as freedom fighters and as people who stood up against colonial rule fearlessly. And it's just beautiful to see how these contemporary artists bring these narratives to the fore 
throughout their works. And uh, in Oceana James, who um, addresses Crucian colonial history in this work, obviously, uh, she speaks specifically about Venus Johannes, who freed herself from enslavement. So in the performative work, well, it's a performance that took place at the former home of Venus Johannes in St. Croix. It's called Forgoe the Deceitful Fellow. Now, it's interesting just to speak a little bit about Venus Johannes because it's incredible what she went through and what she managed to achieve. She was born in Senegal and captured and taken to the island of Gorée. She was sold to Anne Roussin Pepin, who was a prominent so-called free colored, who was married to Nicolas Pepin, who was the owner of Gorée's House of Slaves, which is also has its own door of no return. There was a Captain Maddock who came to visit from St. Croix and fell in love with Venus Johannes. And there were these exchanges back and forth. He took her to St. Croix and ended up selling her to Yehodan Yates. But obviously that was not the situation that she had hoped for. And she was so strong and she managed to go to the Danish magistrate and, uh, argue, well, let's say, argue her way out of her enslavement. And she managed to subsequently, subsequently free herself from enslavement. And obviously she's a very important person in the history of St. Croix and is, uh, is, uh, yeah, yeah, is uh, memorialized uh, it beautifully in this work. Um, one could call it a theatrical experiment, an intervention. Through this work, Oceana James unveils the direct link between colonial power structures and the prevalence of racism today. So dressed all in white, um, it's, it's, it's a powerful performance that emphasizes the spiritual connection between African-Americans, Blacks living in St. Croix, and the larger African diaspora. There are small origami boats that create a strong metaphor for the slave ships of the Middle Passage. There's a shrine to honor ancestral spirits that makes it seem like a sacred site. And there's a call and response between James and the audience, which becomes a way of exercising the colonial demons from that specific site. So Oceana James, also in her other works, is really adept at bringing ancestral memory and colonial history into a contemporary space through words, sounds, rhythm, and movement. You then come back to LaVon Bell, who you had written about in terms of her collaborative work, but then you focus on her individual practice as well. Yes, and just as with Jeanette uh, Ellers, Lavon Bell is uh, an artist in her own right and has a very expansive practice uh, working in different media and in different ways. She um, is typically inspired by architecture, history, and archaeology um, that she addresses in ways that challenge colonial hierarchies and narratives. It's a really rich visual language that uh, Lavon Bell offers us. And there's one particular series that I find um, really compelling. It's called Cheney, We Live in the Fragments. Um, now, these are paintings that connect Denmark and the Virgin Islands 
visually, formally, and historically. We see the the paintings are uh, they they bring to mind the blue and white patterns that are typical of traditional Danish porcelain. Uh, we see the flora and fauna and wildlife of the Virgin Islands as well. So there's a combination between those two factors. Cheney, the word, is a hybrid for China and money, or China not as the land, but China as in porcelain and money. Um, so this work relates to the fragments of colonial plates that are still found throughout the Virgin Islands. And Lavon Bell's work stands as a beautiful antidote to erasure and whitewashing um, and the colonial amnesia connected to, well, in this case, uh, Danish colonization of the former West Indies. So these fragments are an everyday visual reminder of the fractured fractures caused by colonialism. And I think this work and her other works emphasize the fact that Colonialism is simply not something we can dismiss as part of the, of the past. And we know this because the atrocities of colonialism, they reverberate today with the residual effects of colonialism as seen most obviously in terms of poverty, forced migration, and racism. Um, another work that also relates to, to uh, Cheney in, in general is, um, well, actually it's a different work, but we, we're, still, we're, we're still talking about plates. <laughs> but in this work on the service of the kingdom, she addresses historical erasure again. Here she refers to the dessert plates that were commissioned by King Frederick VI to represent the breadth and wealth of Denmark. So oddly enough, of the 81 plates, only one represents the former Danish West Indies, from which so much of Denmark's wealth was gained. And that's really doesn't make sense at all. Um, and in general, the work explores ideas of colonial image making and consumption and the fragmentation of identity. In your next chapter, Building a Bridge Across the Atlantic, you talk about an artist who focuses on the different connections uh, within diaspora. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Building a Bridge Across the Atlantic is the chapter about Michel Eistrup. And as a um, Jamaican-Danish-American artist, it probably shouldn't come as a surprise that she has a foot in many different cultures. Um, and it, this chapter emphasizes the breadth of her work. Um, I touch upon uh, Bridging Art and Text, which is a three-volume, 800-page book that connects geographies and gaps of knowledge. And I think this is a really important seminal work for her because Michelle Eistrup, as anybody who knows her would know, is someone who is very focused on 
creating works that are based on artistic research and also someone who typically collaborates with other artists and researchers. And just knowing that this is an 800-page book with three volumes, it's really like almost a survey of African diaspora art practices with special emphasis on the Caribbean. And that's really quite beautiful. Um, So I felt that that was important to mention. But the work that is uh, perhaps most relevant within the context of this book is All Sons Forever, which is a work in progress that addresses the Nkisi objects that were stolen from the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, The work would include a multi-channel video installation, dance performances in dialogue with Nkisi objects, and a series of prints. So the work is, it it addresses very specifically uh, King Leopold's expeditions and the fact that there are over 38,000 objects in Nordic private and museum collections. And that's pretty shocking to think about the fact that even at the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo, nearly 11% of their entire collection was related to one of these, it was were looted and stolen within these ex- expeditions by Schoenberg and Martini. So this is another way of placing focus on aspects of colonial history that most people are generally not aware of this idea that, you know, there's there's been this sort of Scandinavian exceptionalism that, well, we weren't part of it. But yes, in fact, Norwegians and Swedes and Danes were very much part of the entire colonial project. I mean, that's a very jarring figure for the museum collection. <laughs> I, yeah, it really is. It really is. And what's even more jarring is that I mean, I hope that this will change, but they they basically want to pretend that that isn't the case. Mm. But, you know, this is this is happening worldwide. You know, I mean, uh, it takes time for for museums to acknowledge that there is only one thing to do. And it is to acknowledge that 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 artifacts and cultural heritage objects have been looted and stolen uh, need to be returned to, to their appropriate owners. Of course. And yeah. and so then this this artist is also bringing awareness to that, to something that I think a lot of people don't really realize. And it's, and she does it in a very interesting way too, because she creates this, this uh, interesting narrative between Scandinavia and West Africa and the American South through dancers from the American South. And she creates these really interesting connections that speak of the movement of bodies across geographies, like, of course, in relation to uh, the transport of enslaved bodies. But it's, um, it's just a way of not only activating in Kesey objects through dance, but raising awareness about these, these facts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
In the next chapter, you then move into the artist Suchitra Matai's multidisciplinary practice. Yeah, she is. It's and I, this is one of the things I love about all the artists in these in in my book because each of them has a very distinct and individual practice. So we're going off in so many different directions, and yet everything is interconnected. And Matai employs paintings, textiles, drawing, collage, video, and sculpture in uh, works that often involve reclaiming ownership of cultural artifacts, but a different kind of artifact than the kind of artifacts we were just speaking about. She addresses the complexities of Guyana's colonial history specifically. Um, There are references to her own family history and the ancestral memory of those who traveled the Middle Passage from India to Guyana. And she often addresses processes of migration. Um, Her work in general, which I find really fascinating, um, often addresses migration, as I mentioned, and it resonates within the context of Glissant's thinking, particularly in relation to the idea of monde, a world that cannot be systemized. Her works also capture his interest in Baroque expression, particularly in terms of how she often finds existing uh, embroidered needleworks that are typically colonial, and she pokes at the eyes of the colonizers by embroidering onto them with their with her own uh, additions and creating really interesting works that raise questions about what was and what is and what should be. Um, one work in particular, which is a really large scale work that is worth mentioning is Imperfect Isometry, which was part of the Sharjah Biennial in 2014. It's comprised of vintage saris from India, Sharjah, and her own Indo-Guyanese family. And it's a work that so clearly conveys the entangled colonial histories uh, and contemporary migration. Uh, and it's, 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 so, it's a beautiful work in terms of just the sheer colors. And if you think about these saris as not as symbols of human beings and ownership, um, it's a symbols of shared identity seen in these fabrics that connect Indian and Indian diaspora women visually and metaphorically. And I think that's what's wonderful to see how these different artists address aspects of colonial history in completely different ways that really capture the viewer or reader's attention um, to make us think differently about both the past and the future and the present. Your next chapter on Alberta Whittle then brings in sound and emphasizes sound. Absolutely. Yeah. She is, I mean, that's the sound of the Black Atlantic. And um, she implements sound as part of her continual deconstruction of colonial amnesia. And she really has a gift for mixing sonic and visual elements and creating captivating interconnected narratives. And one thing I love is that I love to say that 
the way I see it, she creates her own decolonial sound systems. She eliminates white noise so that we can hear stories of resistance against the continued effect of colonialism. And I'd say this aspect of sound, her work evokes the deep blues that Glisson and Du Bois knew all about, the kind of blues that spread from shantytowns and plantations. And as she puts it herself, Hers is the tongue of a selector, mixing tunes and shanties and rhythms. And it's really something, I mean, it's really visceral experience to, to experience her work. And she's, she calls for reparations, past and present, because her work not only relates to co colonial amnesia, it also relates to current events, such as, a, you know, she she, it's a cultural critique of the deportation crisis in the UK, the Grenfell Tower fire in London, the dire aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. So she implements sound to bring history and memory into contemporary spaces in ways that, again, ask us to question the connection between past and present, or more specifically, ask us to be conscious of the social injustices that are truly the result of the lingering effects of colonialism. Um, interestingly, her performances often play out in historical sites that are somehow connected to slavery. Um, and the soundscapes include everything from delicate musical instruments to sounds from nature to the spoken word, poetry, lullabies, uh, even politically imbued adaptations of pop songs. Uh, so she essentially hums, sings, groans, and screams for our attention, and she does manage to capture it. So I, I, I love that aspect of her work. And that's perhaps one of the first artists whose uh, connection to sonic politics is quite clear. Then you can see the connection to listening to the echoes of the South Atlantic, as I mentioned earlier. Connecting maybe to that idea of amnesia or of the telling of history, your next chapter emphasizes an artist who um, is telling stories of heroines that have been left out of the Eurocentric colonial narrative. Can you tell us about that? This is the chapter, A Seat at the Table. Yeah. Patricia Kershenhout, um, she has been working on themes relating to an ongoing inquiry of African and African diasporic movements in correlation with feminism, sexuality, racism, and the history of slavery for many years. And this work that she has created, which is called uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, is a truly iconic work that honors the countless Black women whose importance has long been erased from Eurocentric historical narratives. And it was created in response to Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party. Uh, and Kershenhout was interested in including the heroines who have left out, been left out of the Eurocentric colonial narrative. So she has a more inclusive dinner party that includes 38 Black, Brown, and Indigenous women who were never granted their rightful seat at the table. And each of these women... Um, represent uh, power uh, and strength and uh, through their stories uh, 
we are exposed to narratives of leadership and rebellion. Um, three women whose fight against colonialism and slavery are particularly relevant within the context of this book are Queen Nanny of the Maroons, Queen Nzinga, and Escrava Anastasia, who was a legendary 18th century blue-eyed black beauty who was revered as a saint and considered one of the most important women in Brazilian history. Interestingly, Escrava Anastasia is also uh, a heroine who is addressed in uh, Grada Quilomba's work, which I'm going to speak about a little bit later. Tell us more about Quilomba's uh, approach to Anastasia in the next chapter. Yeah, so Plantation Memories... Um, uh, where I speak about Grada Quilomba, uh, Escrava Anastasia is, is figures quite prominently. Um, and before I speak about Escrava Anastasia, I'd like to say in general, there are three questions that Quilomba consistently addresses throughout her work. Who can speak? What can we speak about? And what happens when we speak? And I mention this because... Escrava Anastasia was condemned to wear an iron mask, only removing it to eat. And this is in incredible that she was not allowed to speak. And the implications of the mask that she was forced to wear are what Quilomba describes as a brutal mask of speechlessness. Now, how Escrava Anastasia is integrated within the work. She's a really important part of the Desire Project. The Desire Project, which is uh, something that, actually I need to backtrack to talk about the Desire Project first, because in general, uh, Grada Quilombo is um, known for being an artist whereby storytelling is a central element in her unique interdisciplinary approach. And this often involves visual, oral, and textual interpretations of her own texts. Girada Quilomba's seminal book, Plantation Memories, Episodes of Everyday Racism, is a firsthand account of experiences of trauma and racism told by women of the African diaspora. So this book is adapted into a series of stage readings and is also complemented by the Desire Project, which includes the Shrine to Anastasia. And this conveys how everyday racism is experienced in public space, through speech, and through language. This work and all of her works are about becoming empowered, about taking full control of the narrative and telling one's own story. So the Shrine to Anastasia is very important especially when one considers what Quilomba discusses, the implications of this mask that Anastasia was forced to wear, which is a brutal mask of speechlessness. Why did one not want her to speak? What was one af afraid of? So this is really also a decolonial shrine. And that's something that she actually develops upon further in another work, Table of Goods, which is comprised of soil, sugar, coffee, cocoa, dark chocolate, and wax candles. These were the goods that were integral to the slave trade that Quilomba transforms into a contemporary art installation. 
thereby visualizing her observation that the pleasures of the rest, West are the horrors of the rest. Your next chapter, Shooting as a Radical Decolonial Gesture, then focuses on the artist Sasha Huber. Yeah, Sasha Huber addresses the immediate connection between the social injustices of colonial history and contemporary society through performance-based interventions, video, photography, and stapled mixed-media works. I would say the shooting series is her most iconic series, and these are the stapled mixed-media works. These works involve the use of an air staple gun, which is a radical decolonial gesture in and of itself. She really shoots back at colonizers with these works. The variations in how light plays against the staples creates fascinating visual patterns and also plays with notions of visibility and invisibility, which we have touched upon before with some of the artists, and also erasures and reversals. What's interesting is that in these portraits, the individuals are highly visible, yet also partially hidden. These portraits pay homage to many individuals of the African diaspora who are typically overlooked or who have been uh, typically overlooked or brushed aside, even consciously erased from Eurocentric narratives of colonial history. And she often executes these works on found and repurposed objects. Uh, One work that I focus on in the book is absolutely one of my favorites, the first, James Baldwin, which is an in-situ work created on the window shutter of the chalet where James Baldwin spent time in Leukerbad, Switzerland, where he spent time writing Go Tell It on the Mountain. And in this sense, she brings hidden and untold narratives to the fore, raising consciousness about individuals well, not necessarily James Baldwin, everybody knows who he is, but in other cases, individuals that people have possibly not uh, been as conscious of as they should have. Um, So that is the first. The other portraits in the series are dedicated to the first individuals of the African diaspora who immigrated to various European countries in the 19th and 20th century. The last artist that you focus on is John Acumfra, and you're specifically looking at the sea within this, which I just want to say I think is also a really interesting part of how you've organized this book as you've moved through these different examples, starting with examples that are specifically related to a Danish-Norwegian history into examples of artists who are looking at histories that have been lost or erased or silenced, and then ending on this question of the role of the sea within this. Yeah, um, it, it seemed natural to to end with John O'Compra, who, again, I mean, in the beginning, I talked about the sea as history, and he also participated in that exhibition. So there is sort of full circle here in, in many ways. And I think one of the things um, that 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 really uh, inspired me to have him as sort of like you know the, the the culmination of the entire book is that throughout his work the sea um, he, he he says the sea is the repository for all the crimes of empire uh, ranging from the Middle Passage 
to the contemporary, um, which is forced migration across treacherous seas to escape dire political, social, and economic circumstances. So I think that, um, you know, throughout the book, uh, there is a sense that, you know, we must address the past in order to address in order to better understand the present. And I think that becomes quite clear throughout uh, the narratives and, and, and the works that are addressed in the book, but particularly in John Acampo's work. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, in relation to Mantia Diawara and how he, 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 I give him so much credit for his, um, the way in which he visualizes the thinking of Glissant, John Acumfra, um, for his part, has visualized the thinking of Stuart Hall in a way that I think is 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 unprecedented. Um, particularly if you think about his work, The Unfinished Conversation, um, which is a three-channel video installation that he created in 2012. Um, it's unparalleled in terms of conveying Stuart Hall's thinking visually and sonically. And again, it provides crucial insight into processes of migration, both historical and contemporary. And it is this connection that I'm really interested in trying to bring out through these narratives. And I think that these artists are as well. Um, Focusing on Vertigo C, which is also the image that is featured on the cover of the book, the work was created as a compilation of historical documentation combined with BBC natural history unit footage. There are literary references to Herman Melville's Moby Dick and Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. It's filmed on the Isle of Skye, the Faroe Islands, and Northern Norway. Um, most importantly, perhaps, visual references to colonial history with passages of text from the first-person narrative of Olauda Equiana, the West African-born survivor of the Transatlantic Passage, who played a vital role in British abolitionist movement. And um, he is, of course, perhaps best well known for having written the interesting narrative of the life of Olauda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa, the African, 1789. And think about the fact that he managed to purchase his freedom. And this is, a, this is a, an account, a firsthand account uh, written by someone who survived the transatlantic passage. That is incredibly powerful and so meaningful. And I think it's interesting that to this day, reading that account is, is something that, that really uh, provides us a different perspective than, than what has typically been told from a Eurocentric uh, perspective. You end by way of a conclusion with the chapter, Healing from the Past and Reimagining the Future. Can you tell us about that? So in this, in this chapter, uh, as I was writing this chapter in the middle of the pandemic and, uh, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, um, it, it, it was a way of sort of concluding without concluding. I mean, there's no conclusion to this book because it's, it's, an, on, it's an unfinished conversation to borrow from John Lecomfra. But the overriding message 
is that the colonial past cannot be ignored, dismissed, or swept aside. It just can't. And um, in thinking about that, and, and part of the reason that historical statues and monuments were being toppled down worldwide in the wake of the murder of George Floyd was because of an inability to confront the residual effects of colonialism for so many years. And it's still something that really needs to continue to be addressed because these kinds of uh, interventions, I mean, at the time people would call them interventions or the toppling of statues, that kind of thing will not stop until real change has occurred. And we've just only begun you know, and we are at a time in history when decolonial strategies in contemporary art are more important than ever. And that's perhaps the most important aspect that I wanted to underline at the end of the book, because I feel that when I say that, I'm saying that the decolonial strategies in contemporary art in general look at the work of these artists and how they have a gift for addressing and confronting the injustice, uh, injustices of colonialism and making it quite clear um, that there are alternatives, there are alternative histories that need to be highlighted, that uh, alternative perspectives that need to come out, that there are ways to address these topics that involve um, uh, the empowerment of individuals who have been overlooked and who have been marginalized. And the importance of that is something that I really wanted to uh, make clear in this chapter, because we are working together. It is, it is our collective responsibility to rethink the past and to rethink how we can approach the future to create a more just and fair society for all. And I mean, for me, one person who has been incredibly important to me has been Saidiya Hartman. And I mean, her book, Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route is so poignantly and poetically uh, written. I end the book with uh, citing uh, Hartman because I think this kind of explains exactly why these narratives have to come to the fore. Quote, if the ghost of slavery still haunts our present, it is because we are still looking for an exit from the prison, unquote. Well, Celine, thank you so much. We've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us before we end, can you tell us what you are working on now? I am uh, currently uh, the curator for Vanderbilt University's Engine for Art, Democracy and Justice program for 2022 and 2023, um, which is entitled Artistic Activism and the Power of Collective Resistance. Uh, that features a number of uh, online uh, panel discussions that will take place through 2023 and um, many artist interventions and uh, installations and performances that will take place in cultural venues, uh, historical sites and public spaces throughout Nashville. And I am also the uh, artistic director, along with Amal Al-Hag, for 
um, Practicing Freedom, which is a transcultural project initiated by Goethe Institute that we have conceptualized and curated that addresses um, decoloniality and the restitution of cultural heritage objects. And that also involves a series of events, including uh, talks, uh, podcasts, uh, publications, workshops, conferences, uh, and a final exhibition and publication that will take place in 2024. Celine, those both sound like wonderful projects. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Holiday.